You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine biblical anthropology. Dr. Spencer, in the past two sessions, we've discussed the questions you called the bookends to life, where we came from and where we're going. What would you like to discuss today? I want to discuss the creation of man. In Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2, we read a summary statement, quote, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. And the Hebrew word translated as man in that verse is Adam, the same word used for the name of the first man. That's right. God used the same term to refer to the entire human race, both male and female, and to refer to men in distinction from women. Wayne Grudem points out in his Systematic Theology that since this usage originated with God himself, quote, we should not find it objectionable or insensitive, unquote. Now, I personally think it's a good idea to use gender-neutral terms when it's possible to do so without misrepresenting the Word of God or making our speech or writing awkward or ungrammatical. But no woman should take offense at being referred to as a part of mankind. The term man can be used as a generic term for human beings or as a term specifically referring to a male individual. Like many words, it has more than one meaning. And contrary to popular opinion among non-Christians, the biblical view of women is that they are absolutely equal with men in terms of dignity and worth. And no man would be here if it weren't for a woman, and we all have a mother. That's certainly true. And so is the reverse. We all have a father as well. We need each other in many ways. We'll get to the biblical view of women later, but I will continue at times to use the word man to refer to human beings in general, and I certainly do not mean in any way to denigrate women when I do so. But let's return to the creation of mankind. One of the first questions that most people would think to ask about creation in general and mankind specifically is, why did God create man? While discussing the question, where did we come from, in session 94, we noted the purpose of life from our perspective is, first of all, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then secondly, to live for God's glory. You could say that to ask why God created man is to examine the purpose of life from God's perspective rather than ours. That's a good way of looking at it. And the most important point we should make at the start is that God didn't need to create man at all. Our great triune God has had perfect love and fellowship within the persons of the Trinity eternally. He certainly did not need us for fellowship or for any other reason. It was his free choice to create anything at all, and more to the point, it was his free choice to create man. He did not need us. Yeah, that fact is very disappointing to some people. I suppose it is, but it shouldn't be. It most certainly does not mean that our lives are meaningless. Quite the contrary. Our lives would be meaningless if we were cosmic accidents. But the fact that God created us for a purpose gives our lives great meaning. In addition, God takes delight in his people. We are, for example, called his treasured possession. The Hebrew word for treasured possession is segula, which is used eight times in the Old Testament. Six of those times it refers to God's chosen people. For example, in Exodus 19, verse 5, 
God told Moses to tell the people, quote, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. That's an amazing thing to consider, that the eternally perfect God considers us his treasured possession. It's an astounding statement. But as a weak analogy, think of a great artist. He could take joy and receive pleasure from his greatest work of art, and you could say it was his treasured possession. And to say that would not imply that the work of art was in any way necessary. The pleasure the artist had in it would be the pleasure of seeing his own handiwork. It would not be a property of the art itself. Exactly. The fact that God does not need us in no way diminishes our worth. But the pleasure he has in us is the pleasure of a creator. It isn't because we somehow add something. But I called the analogy of an artist and his work a weak one because it fails miserably in one way. In what way does it fail? It fails because as creatures, we cannot create living beings. We can only create inanimate objects. But God created living beings who can, in fact, have real fellowship with him. The fact that he doesn't need our fellowship does not mean that he will never enjoy it. We read in Isaiah 62, verse 5, quote, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. <laughs> That's incredible to think about. It truly is. God doesn't need us, but he does derive joy from us. We can also add to this discussion the observation that it's a very good thing that God doesn't need us in any way. Now, why do you say that? Because if God actually needed us in any way to accomplish his purposes, then we couldn't be sure he would accomplish his purposes. His promises would not be certain, because man is never infallibly dependable. Our only real hope is in God. I trust his promises precisely because they don't depend on anything outside of God, and certainly not on me. No one can thwart his purposes. We read in Isaiah 14, verse 27, quote, For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Yeah, that is very comforting. Yes, it is. And we read in Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 24, that Jesus prayed, quote, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world, unquote. Which backs up my statement that the persons of the Trinity have had perfect love and fellowship for all eternity. All right, we've established so far that God didn't need us and that we are his treasured possession. What else do you want to say about why God made us? God created us for his glory. God himself says in Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7, quote, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, unquote. And in Ephesians 1, 11, and 12, the Apostle Paul wrote that we were chosen in Christ, quote, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. What a wonderful purpose that is. And we should point out that we receive great joy from working to accomplish that purpose and from having fellowship with God as we do so. And our pleasure in God will be eternal. In Psalm 16, verse 11, King David wrote, You have made known to me the path of life. 
you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And there is no greater joy than having one of those moments when you're praying or meditating on God's Word, and you get a slight glimmer of understanding of the divine majesty and a sense of His presence with you. In Psalm 27, verse 4, the psalmist declared, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to seek Him in His temple. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm really glad you brought up that passage, because it shows that our love for God is not just based on emotion or some mystical experience, as is often assumed by unbelievers. We have not seen God, and we don't see him now. But Peter gives the reason for our faith. He says, quote, For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, unquote. In other words, we have a good reason for our faith. It is not an irrational leap in the dark. It is based on truth. We have looked at the word of God and found it to be true, and we see him working in our own lives, bringing about our salvation. This is an intelligent apprehension of truth. And the Bible commands us in several places to examine ourselves. Yes, it does. In fact, Peter himself tells us in 2 Peter 1, verse 10, to make our calling and election sure. And Paul similarly tells us in Philippians 2:12 to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Many self-proclaimed Christians today want a faith that doesn't need to be tested. They will tell you that they prayed to receive Christ once, and so they're saved, and it doesn't really matter how they live, because we're not saved by works. That's a very popular view of Christianity. And it's a profoundly unbiblical view. That is to say, it's an unchristian view of Christianity. When we're told to examine ourselves and to make our calling and election sure, there is an obvious assumption that if we have been saved, there will necessarily be changes that can be observed. Otherwise, what could you examine? But the purpose of examining ourselves is not to put us in a perpetual state of uncertainty, fear, and anxiety. The purpose is that we may see God at work in our lives and draw the conclusion that we have been born again, that his word is true, and that we can have great hope, confidence, and joy in knowing his promises are true and certain. Unless, of course, we see no evidence of God working in our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul commanded, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Yeah, as with any real test, there's a possibility of failure. But even failure is gracious, because if we fail the test, we clearly see our need and should be driven to cry out to God for mercy, and he will never turn away a truly repentant person. We are the beneficiaries no matter how the test turns out. Either we pass the test and have great assurance and hope, or we fail the test and are driven to seek salvation, which is the one thing we really need. Of course, all of this does beg the question of how I go about testing myself. That's a great question, and the Bible gives us the answer. In fact, it's one theme of the Apostle John's first letter. In 1 John 5.13, he wrote, 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There isn't anything more important than that, knowing that you have eternal life. And knowing that brings great joy. In the same letter John also wrote in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And it's also important to point out that the joy spoken of by John is not just a momentary feeling of happiness or pleasure. It is much deeper than that. It is the joy of the Lord, which we are told in Nehemiah 8.10 is our strength. And because it is a deep joy, not just momentary happiness, it's a joy that we can have even in the midst of suffering. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, that we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. That is true and amazing. In Romans 8, verse 28, we're told that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, unquote. And that includes even suffering. God uses it for our good. And now I'd like to look at a passage that puts together several things we've been discussing. In John 15, verses 8 through 11, Jesus told us that, quote, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Yeah, that's a marvelous passage, and it does tie things together nicely. It is to the Father's glory that we bear fruit by loving him, which means obeying his commands. If we do that, our joy will be complete. But can we get back to John's first letter? You noted that one reason he wrote it was so that we could know that we have eternal life. What tests does he give us to use? Well, as the Reverend P.G. Matthew noted in his commentary on 1 John, he provides three biblical tests of authentic Christianity, the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. Yeah, that makes me think of 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, where Paul told his young protege to watch your life and doctrine closely. Yes, both are important, how we live and what we believe. The doctrinal test that John provides is not comprehensive. He uses a few essentials as representative of the essential body of doctrine. We'll just examine a few of them today. Let's begin with the first two verses of this letter. In 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. There's a lot of doctrine packed into those two verses. There certainly is. For example, we note that he speaks of, quote, that which was from the beginning. In other words, in his deity, Jesus is eternal. There never was a time when he did not exist. This is a necessary doctrine of the Christian faith. And as the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, he existed as spirit. He did not have a body. 
And yet, John goes on to say that this is one, quote, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, unquote. Which clearly speaks of the Incarnation. Jesus, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, became man. He is truly God, and he became truly man. He is the unique God-man, the only Savior. And the rest of that brief passage essentially says the same thing again. John wrote, quote, This we proclaim concerning the word of life, which harkens back to what he wrote in his gospel. John 1.1 tells us, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, unquote. Then he goes on in his first letter to say that, quote, The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Unquote. This again clearly refers to the incarnation. This eternal life, Jesus, who was with the Father, appeared to John and others, and they are declaring that to us. And what other essential doctrines does John use as examples? Well, in 1 John 1, verse 5, he says that, quote, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. Unquote. In context, it's obvious that he is using light and darkness metaphorically. Which is a common thing for John to do. He liked stark contrasts, light and darkness, love and hate, life and death, sons of God and sons of the devil. He does like stark contrasts. And to flesh out the metaphor he's using here in verse 5, we could say that God is absolutely holy, just, and truthful. In him there is no unholiness, injustice, or falsehood. Another doctrine he highlights is the pervasive sinfulness of man. He wrote in chapter 1, verse 8, that, quote, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, unquote. There are more doctrines stated or implied in this letter, but for our present purposes, that's enough. The main point is that while we live in a free country, and anyone can call himself a Christian, our testimony about ourselves is irrelevant on the day we appear before the judgment seat of God. All that will matter on that day is what Jesus Christ himself says about us. And if we have rejected God's revelation of himself in the Bible, or twisted and distorted it to suit our own ideas, that will not work with God. No, it won't work at all. We don't need to be expert theologians to be saved, and there are doctrines about which truly born-again people can disagree, as we've noted before in these podcasts. But there are also essential doctrines. If you don't believe in the full deity and humanity of Christ, his atoning death on the cross, and his bodily resurrection, for example, you are not a Christian. Very well. I think we're out of time today, and we'll have to pick this up again next time. I'd like to remind our listeners that they can email questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org, and we'll do our best to respond. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine biblical anthropology. We hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to 
whatdoesthewordsay.org.